Welcome everyone to this episode of Manufacturing Talk Radio. I'm Tim Gritty and I am here with podcast host and founder Lou Weiss, who came up with the idea of Manufacturing Talk Radio back in November of 2013 and we've been broadcasting weekly ever since. Today we are joined by David Braun, who is the founder and CEO of Capstone Strategic, a mergers and acquisition consulting firm. David, thanks for joining us. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And Lou, congratulations. This will be your 10-year anniversary. Well done. It is. It is. Uh, what's happening now is I'm beginning, I'm getting old enough that I have an anniversary almost every month about something. <laughs> Celebrate all of them. Uh, you bet. You bet. So how's Washington, D.C. doing? Well, it, we're still surviving and, and thriving, I would say. Uh, we're continuing to do well. And of course, uh, you know, it's it's never for slow, uh, never a slow day in Washington, D.C. area. Never. I, and that's my hometown. So I, I know of what you speak. <laughs> so give us a little insight. What What is uh, Capstone Strategic all about? Sure. Thank you for that. Um, so I started Capstone. Uh, I have an anniversary coming up. This will be 28 years ago that I started uh, Capstone, uh, really okay. with one concept in mind. Uh, and that's to help companies to grow primarily through external means, acquisitions, joint ventures, strategic alliances, minority investments, you know, all the things that are not around, you know, do you have the right salespeople? Do you have the right brand or do you have the right um, location for your manufacturing? It's really more about how do we take companies and often they're good companies that want to continue to grow, but maybe the organic growth isn't where, you know, they have a lot of traction or opportunity and, uh, so that's really where we specialize in. And I've tried to blend together a bit of, you know, I started my career in uh, boutique investment banking, and I really um, felt like one of the things that really needed to be added to the conversation in a more meaningful way is the whole concept of strategy. How do we, how do we kind of marry those two together? So it isn't just about <clears throat> kind of financial engineering, it isn't just about what, you know, might look good on a spreadsheet, but how do we really be thoughtful about uh, what to invest in and where to invest our time and our resources. And I, I got to tell you, from most of my experience, and we work with a lot of manufacturing companies, and, and from my experience, most of them, it's not lack of opportunities. The challenge is focus. You know, what, which ones do we want to spend time on? Which ones do we think are going to be the most meaningful? And every company is a little bit different in that regard uh, in terms of their risk tolerance and timing and opportunities. So, that's a, a little bit about kind of how I got started in this business and, and a little bit about my passion for helping companies to grow and to do it in a thoughtful way that, um, you know, is sustainable. One of the things that uh, Tim and I, you heard that we're doing this for 10 years. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that Tim and I have picked up over the years, and actually we learned it very early on, is that manufacturers know how to manufacture. They know how to make things, they know how to buy goods, they know how to do all kinds of things, but there are also things that they don't know how to do or haven't been focused enough or they don't have a, the right people or the right uh, uh, outside resources to help them. And that is how to grow the company, how to sustain the company and how to market the company. Yeah. So it sounds to me that's, where you are focusing uh, your resources to help mid mid-sized companies? Yeah, I mean, most of the companies we we the market that we tend to focus in on is the 
pretty broad. I'll call it five to $500 million size range. I mean, that's kind of the area that we tend to operate in, not that revenues are the only measure. But I think you described it really well. Um, you know, many manufacturing companies that we work with are exceptionally good at manufacturing, you know, or think of it, uh, to use an analogy, they're really good at making sure the trains run on time. Part of the challenge that they have is they don't always know where the trains should be headed and what schedule they should be on and what amenities they should be offering on the train for the uh, for the passengers and how to sell tickets to the passengers. I mean that so that's often is that challenge and and in this environment um, we kind of see a bit of a divide going on um, where you have people that are really good at knowing how to have the finger on the pulse for what's going on in the marketplace, what customers want, what they need, you know, what kind of the, the trends are. You know, as Henry Ford said, if, I, if I'd asked my customers what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. Um, and for many manufacturing companies, they want it to, to run better, be less expensive, you know, and, be, and, and take less lead time. But the reality is, is that part of our, our opportunity is to really manage that relationship with customers. And there's companies, there are companies out there that, that have gotten really good at not seeing that side of it. And then there's companies who just continue to excel on the manufacturing side and say, you know what, that's what we're really good at. It's tough to be good at both. And so in this environment today, we have a concept called aggregation. And the idea behind an aggregator is, hey, let me manage that relationship with customers as this kind of piece of the equation. And I'll line up all the things that go behind it. You know, think, think, use another analogy. Think about Amazon. You know, it's very easy to get comfortable buying things online through Amazon. You know, you push a button, miraculously, some another arrives on your front porch tomorrow. Well, think about that same concept because Amazon doesn't make those products, doesn't even, and in some cases, touch or deliver those. They might have a, a network of people and, and distribution channels. Well, think about that same model in, in the manufacturing world where, where someone really understands the, the needs of customers and understands how to have that vocabulary with them. And then there are other companies who are just really good at the execution side of it, manufacturing side of it, uh, and can continue to focus resources on excellence um, there. So that whole concept of aggregation where you get one that's focused on either one of those, but they aggregate the things around it that make them unique and special uh, in their space. And, you know, that's that's something that we're continuing to see uh, as a divide in the marketplace. And, and frankly, as an opportunity. So uh, from what I gather from your, your uh, our notes and your bio and so on, that uh, you've been operating in roughly 30 countries. Uh, you've done hundreds and hundreds of uh, companies where you've either helped them to excel or you've helped them in a M&A uh, merger and acquisition environment. So tell us a little bit about that and which one of those two are the your primary uh, focus for your so, company? So historically our, our focus has been very much on what we call the industry buy side. You know, take a, take a company that wants to continue to grow. And one of the things that we're seeing, for example, right now in the manufacturing world is it's a bit of a renaissance that we've been seeing for for a little while, actually. I think COVID only accelerated it or put the spotlight on the importance of it. But we've actually been seeing it for a while where, where customers, I think, are recognizing that they better have good manufacturing resources 
and they better have them lined up in a meaningful way that can have the the ability to have the flexibility to do small runs, not just these long, you know, commodity type runs, but you know, have have high flexibility. So we've been seeing in in the manufacturing world um, a bit of this renaissance on the on the and on the acquisition side, where companies are first looking at acquisitions to expand their geographic footprint, so they're not just in Northeast Ohio, but they might be in the Midwest, and then they might da uh, dabble to more of the Southeast and then the West Coast, you know, and kind of being very selective about markets that they want to geographically uh, be in in order to serve their customers on a more national basis. And then, and then we're seeing where we're helping uh, clients to say, okay, now we better have a presence in Europe and we better have a presence in Asia. Um, because a lot of our customers also want this same capability replicated and they want us in country. Doesn't mean we're going to do the same level of manufacturing, but it does mean we're going to have a presence. It may be assembly, it may be storage or warehousing. Um, and so, and, and then the other piece that we're seeing right now uh, is a challenge. And, and that challenge is a lot of people don't view manufacturing as particularly sexy. And a lot of owners are challenged right now with succession planning. So we're now seeing owners that, you know, what we're seeing is they're like 67 and a half on average, a lot of these owners, I'm not saying all of them, but you know, we're, there's a high degree of concentration where they're older, um, their kids, either they don't have kids or their kids are not interested in taking over the business, which is historically what's happened with a lot of manufacturing companies. You know, you would have second and third. We have some sixth and seventh generation manufacturing companies as clients. And the challenge is how do you get the next generation to be interested in it? So that's where the sell side comes in. And we have to be very thoughtful about how we take these family businesses and find what I like to characterize as a good home for them. You know, what's, what's gonna be a meaningful home? So I go back to my first example where many of these companies are, seeing the opportunity, have the vision and the risk tolerance to expand first geographically. So these are kind of a nice fit if we can get these two to, to be together. And then the next part is, is how do we fold in additional products uh, and capabilities, you know, new, add more breadth to what it is that they're doing, but first is geographic. So there's, a, I'm trying to give you some examples of kind of both sides of it. And I think both, both are very important. Um, I really like to see manufacturing companies continue to thrive. Um, I feel very strongly about that. And I, and I think part of it is, is they got to be in the right home. They got to be in a, in a home where the leadership values the capabilities and the investments required um, for those businesses going forward. But here it is. It's uh, 2023. Mm -hmm. uh, we've lived and survived, or most of us lived and survived the COVID. Uh, but COVID also generated uh, uh, a diminishing workforce. Uh, kids are going to college uh, because their mothers and fathers want to have their kid a college graduate, of which only 40% ever graduate. And they're still stuck with $200,000 debt. Uh, this year in manufacturing, and I'm sure you know this number, that the manufacturing population is about 12 million eight. At one time, it used to be 40 million during the Second World War, but but this is the first time it's gone up in about 20 years to 12 eight. But you have a diminishing birth rate. 
you have kids that want to go to college and do go to college and then flunk out. And then they go do uh, rock and roll things in nightclubs and so on. Uh, so we, we've got a, we got a problem. And we had, I don't know if you know the gentleman, Harry Moser, who is um, a reshoring initiative. He's on our show every month. And uh, he, he's uh, talking about the fact that we've only brought back a million jobs out of the 5 million that we lost. To offshoring? To offshoring. Yeah. And uh, by 2028, they claim we're going to still be down 5 million jobs. So where are your manufacturers going to get people or robots to uh, grow their product lines, build new product lines, build new products, and be able to grow, sustain, sell out, merger and acquisition, yeah. and so on and so forth? So there's a lot of there's a lot of pieces to what you just said there. Um, right. First of all, I think part of why you don't you may not see a, a piece of the puzzle where you won't see one for one in terms of offshoring jobs coming back is because of automation. Um, so right. you you know you have companies now that are much more efficient than they were when some of these jobs uh, were offshored, and the jobs that have remained have tended to be the more valuable you know more high-tech uh, kinds of manufacturing jobs. But um, I think there's a number, I, first of all, I don't think there's any one answer. I don't think there's any silver bullet to this. I think it's a variety of things. And let me tell you some of the things that we've been involved in that we, we've seen some success with. Um, part of it is, is you've got to continue to invest in technology. So automation, data analytics, predictive modeling, robotics are all four things. And, and, and I'll, I even add cybersecurity to that. All five of those things are all pieces, you know, that come together that are ingredients to uh, to the process. And, and frankly, manufacturing companies that have not continued to invest in in their capex uh, uh, and portfolio of, of business uh, investments are not going to are not going to probably they're going to have a, they're going to struggle. I'm not saying they can't thrive, but they're going to struggle. Um, and, and so I think part of it is continuing to recognize the changes that are going on. So we, so we know what kind of runs to, when to make runs, when to make orders, when, how we can be more efficient at what it is that we're doing. But there's another piece to that that you talked about, which is, a, I think, a bit more complicated, and that is the labor part of it. You know, how do we, how do we make this an interesting place that people want to work? So you talked about 40%, and is that 40% that start college and, and don't matriculate, don't, don't actually graduate? That's right. a pretty high number. I, I wasn't aware of that. That's actually a pretty high number because we haven't even talked about the 60% who do graduate and then end up with degrees that maybe aren't something that they end up doing or, or, or using in a meaningful way. So part of what we have to do is we also have to recognize that people need, we can't expect people to find manufacturers. We have to go find the talent. And so part of it is also creating relationships um, back into the communities. And there's a number, I'm going to give you some different examples. Again, I don't think there's any one answer. I think it's about doing a variety of things. Um, uh, getting back into high schools and providing apprenticeship type programs so that some kids may find out early on that, you know, uh, going to college maybe isn't, isn't for me. Maybe I really like working with my hands or, or working in this kind of an environment. And frankly, one of the interesting things that we've seen is, is there are a lot of uh, young women 
who have shown an interest because they like the technology, they like the hands-on aspect of it. So let's not let's not overlook the opportunity there to you know go go early, go into high schools and create apprenticeship type or internship type programs where people can get introduced to. It. We've got to go out because they're not going to always uh, find us. Um, second, in some cases, we have to open manufacturing facilities or make investments in new communities. So we've definitely seen where there's been a bit of a migration where we've been doing investments you know, more south of the Mason-Dixon line, more in the southeast and the southwest, where we're looking for areas that have, you know, pockets of population that are, you know, uh, potentially available for us to be able to tap into from a manufacturing standpoint and create partnerships with the local economies and the economic development authorities to create awareness and, and you know, job fairs and things like that to make it important. But we're also looking at ways to create relationships with other companies. Um, so we're partnering with, um, you know, recruiting companies, companies that have excellence in recruiting. Go back to what I said earlier about being an aggregator. Well, part of the part of the piece of the puzzle may be that, you know, we want to partner with a company that's really good at knowing how to recruit. And knowing how to recruit today is different than maybe when you or I were starting out uh, in our careers. You know, today people do recruiting through social media, you know, through Instagram, through uh, different kinds of word of mouth. You know, it isn't the classified ads. It's how are we going to get to these folks? And often it's going to be through video and media. Um, but we want to partner with other companies. We may acquire them. We may joint venture with them. We may create some other partnership. But we want their level of excellence to be married with what we're trying to do. So I think it's a holistic approach of saying there isn't going to be a silver bullet. Uh, we've got to look at this in different ways. We've got to take small bites at the apple on this. Uh, but we, if we are not actively engaged in this conversation, and if we are not actively engaged in, in, in moving forward with testing some of these theories, I think many companies are going to struggle um, because I think this is the way forward, uh, and it involves both automation and investments in technology as well as people. Yeah, I've kind of dominated uh, the bottom half of the screen, so why don't you take, take a shot to get a word in edgewise? Well, David, I want to talk to you about one of the sticking points that always arises in the M&A world, and that's what is the value of my company. Yep. The owner always thinks it's a multiple of, and the buyer wants it to be a percentage less. How do you arrive at a, an evaluation that people can agree on? So, uh, Tim, great question. And and so, first of all, let me start by saying sometimes we don't. Uh, sometimes we just, you know what, we're, we got, we got, we're, we're just not going to get there because uh, as, as I have found, some owners are delusional. So part of it is we have to educate them and, and have them become a little bit more relevant to, to the current environment. So um, there's several things that we do on that. First of all, in a rising interest rate environment, it's actually a little bit easier to have valuation conversations because valuations are becoming a little bit more normal uh, than they have been. You know, when you can when you can basically borrow money for nothing, you can pay a lot for a company. When you have to actually pay money for money, then you're gonna your what you pay for a company is going to be different. Um, but there's there's a number of different things that we do. Part of part of the challenge for owners that are considering selling their business, it's their baby. And many of these are small family, privately owned businesses. You know, it's very common that they're going to be, you know, 10 to $50 million a year in revenues. It may be less than $10 million a year, but they're, they're multi-generational family businesses that, you know, it's, it's their baby, it's their home. 
And so for them, the, a lot of the value is in the emotion. You know, they've invested a lot over the years. They've seen what they've done. They see, they've seen the, you know, the, 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 the times when, they, when things were lean uh, and they didn't take paychecks. So, you know, there's a lot of that emotion that goes into it. And I think the other part as buyers is we have to be very respectful that these owners get to sell one time. And so we have to be patient in, in having these conversations. And so I think the approach where you're just kind of throwing the Excel spreadsheets at them and, and talking to them about weighted average costs of capital and discounted cash flow modeling, you know, I don't think that works real well because it's not the vocabulary that they're used to. So what do we do? Well, part of it is, is we help owners get educated when they're selling, whether we're representing them or we're representing the buyer. And one of the easiest ways to do that is to show them how valuations work. Give them some examples of this. Uh, in some cases, we've actually even paid for the owner of the selling company to get a professional valuation of their company. Let them get someone that's independent, a third party that they can feel confident in to give them kind of a dose of reality of, of how this process works. Um, the other thing that we do is, is, is sometimes we'll structure the deal differently. Um, and one of the common techniques that we're using today is taking minority investments. So Tim, instead of buying 100% of your company, I might buy 40% of your company and then buy the remaining shares over the next three to five years for a couple of different reasons. One, I want you to stay on because you got a lot up here that I need to, to have people learn and, and document. Uh, but the other part is, is that you may not quite be ready to retire or we may have a gap on valuation. And this is a way for us to say, hey, over time, if you actually hit those where you think you're going to be numbers and we're going to help you to get there, then we're going to actually pay for that. Um, so you're going to get a second and a third and maybe a fourth bite at the apple as well. So again, we got a number of different ways to, to, to uh, approach this, um, but I think it starts with a mindset of respecting the owners of most of these, many of these companies, if not most of them, are these are selling their babies and we have to start with a different kind of mindset as we approach them. David, I, I appreciate it. And I'm sorry we're short on time because this is probably the best conversation I've had with anybody about M&A. <laughs> I congratulate you not only for what you've been doing with Capstone in the 28 years you're doing it, but on the quality of the information that you just provided our listeners. Thank you for being with us. My pleasure. It's an honor. How about giving us your URL so our audience can uh, uh, get in touch and get a full sure. dose of your sales pitch? Yeah, absolutely. And anybody in your audience that refers to you, you know, we're happy to talk to them and, and uh, guide them as best we can and give them some, some direction. Um, so capstonestrategic.com, capstonestrategic.com. Um, also, if people want to learn more, I do have a book, uh, uh, Successful Acquisitions, that people are certainly welcome to, to, uh, to they can get it on Amazon uh, again. Um, but if you, because I think part of this is, is it's about learning. And so we're really big on trying to help people to learn. And we invite all of your listeners to, to try us out. We'll give them a complimentary subscription to our webinar series for a year. So uh, we welcome the conversations and welcome the opportunity to, uh, to carry that on. Thanks, David, and we appreciate all of our listeners. Thanks for being with us, and join us for another episode of Manufacturing Talk Radio.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.